All right. Well, thank you, Kevin, and thank you, uh, worship team, for leading us so well. Really appreciate that. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Uh, thank you for being here this morning. Looking forward to kicking off a brand new series uh, on Advent uh, around Christmas here this morning. And so in order to do that, I thought one of the best ways to do that is to give some of you in the room um, a special um, Christmas gift, okay? Oh, and before I start that, um, are we having kids going for, yeah, kids for um, the Christmas program? All right, if you're going to be doing the Christmas program, head on out, okay? All right, wonderful. I think that covers it. All right, so I want to give you a Christmas gift in the room, all right? And th to do that, I want to take you back to one of the most famous photographs that you've probably seen of me in the past uh, year, okay? This was a great moment back in February. Um, you know, I get mistaken a lot for, for Nick here. But this great moment in Philadelphia sports history brought to you by Nick Foles and the Philadelphia Eagles winning the Super Bowl in February. And in, in kind of getting to that moment, right before the actual Super Bowl happened, there were several articles written about the Eagles and the Patriots and, and how they got to that point. And, and one in particular I wanted to highlight because it threw up uh, kind of into our view how the, this team came to be a very improbable champion at the beginning of this year. Um, and it's also improbable they will ever repeat that. But So we, we live in this moment. So here's what Doug Peterson had to say about this team. He said, it's a group that doesn't really care who gets the ball. The bottom line is trying to win the game. Very interesting insight from Doug Peterson. Uh, their starting safety, Malcolm Jenkins, said this. This is about guys being unselfish. Their starting running back, LeGarrette Blunt, said this. We couldn't care less how many catches or how many carries or how many yards any one guy has. We all have one common goal in hand. You can't be selfish and everybody has one common goal because you have to make sacrifices for the better of the team. And then they're starting um, tight end, Zach Ertz, put it this way. He said... This is the most selfless team I've ever been around. Guys don't care about stats. They only care about winning. Doug is the best coach I've ever been around in managing players. His selfless leadership is a big reason that we are here. Right? Over and over again, as you talk to the Eagles and they talk about their season and what brought them success, is these two things seem to come up. Unity and selflessness. Unity and selflessness. We had a goal. We knew what it was, and we didn't care how many carries we got. We knew what we wanted, and we didn't care how many catches we got. It didn't matter if I was a star. We just wanted to win. Unity and selflessness over and over and over and over and over again. And if you know anything about um, how things work, how teams work, how organizations work, how families work, how momentum is created, how this is built, that the, these concepts, unity and selflessness, are very powerful. In fact, I'll put it this way. Unity with selflessness leads to impact, no matter where you are. Organizationally, teamwork in your family. If you have unity around a common cause or purpose or mission, and you have people working with you selflessly to make that happen, you can make an incredible impact in your family. You can make an incredible impact in church, in your team, at your place of employment, wherever it is. Unity with selflessness leads to a powerful potential for impact. It really does. Now, to pull that apart a little bit, though, you also know this is true. If even one of those is missing, it starts to get a little wonky. So put it this way for you. Unity without selflessness leads to competition. If you have unity around a common goal in your business, we want to reach X number of dollars this quarter, we want to see this number of clients, but you don't have selflessness around that goal, you begin to have staff members compete with one another for limited resources. You create a competitive environment within your staff. You don't have 
greatest impact, you actually create harder work among you. Same thing with families or churches or teams. If we have a unity of we want to win the state championship, but we don't have selflessness around that goal, you begin creating competition within teammates about how much playing time you're going to get, who's going to get the coach's attention. It leads to competition, which doesn't actually help with impact. Unity without selflessness is a problem. The same is true on the other end. Selflessness without unity leads to confusion. They're just a bunch of people being nice, and they don't know where they're going. Oh, you go first, you go first, you go first. Well, it's not about me, it's about, but I don't know where we're going. And it leads to confusion about what are we doing? What's, where's our family headed? What's our future financial situation look like? Spiritually, where am I going and how can I grow? And as a church, where are we going? I mean, we're kind people, we don't know where we're going. So selflessness without unity leads to confusion. So both unity and selflessness can lead to impact. And if either one is missing, things get off the rails pretty quickly. Now, this is true not just for families, not just for teams like the Eagles, not just true for you, know, you and your business world, but also true for the church. It has been true for the church ever since time began. One of the first people to follow the way of Christ's teaching, uh, Paul, he, made, he wrote to a bunch of churches in the first century. And one of those churches he wrote to, I believe he had this in mind, not the Eagles and all that, but I think he had unity and selflessness in mind. And the way that he wrote in this little letter that he wrote to the church in a town called Philippi, he wrote about this concept of the church being united and being selfless. And his writing around that letter, to me, is so profound, one of my favorite passages. It's a passage that I want to to elevate and pull apart for the next four weeks with you as we lead up to Christmas in this Advent season. And it really is built on the premise that the church needs to have clarity around unity, And the church should be selfless in its approach to that unity and what we do. And so I want to invite you into that space, into that passage, to to see with me what I mean. And be a judge for yourself if you think that is in that section and how we can learn from that as a church. I want to invite you to turn to the little letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. It's a book in our Bible we call Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 is where I'm going to jump into it's in the New Testament, the right two-thirds of your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we uh, want to give that Bible in the pew to you as our gift to you. But Philippians chapter 2 is where we want to look for the next uh, four weeks at Paul, an early follower of Jesus, writing to the church in Philippi about uh, things of this nature. So welcome to our series that we're calling Christmas. Isn't that an incredible series title that I uh, came up with for this season? What do you think of that, huh? Pretty ingenious. Let's call it Christmas. And the point is, Christmas, when when hope is born, everything changes. And I want to explore with you what happened when Christ came and took on human flesh. So to begin, I want to look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Here's what Paul writes. Verses 1 to 2 have to do with unity. Check it out. If you have any encouragement, he's saying to these folks, these, these new believers in Philippi, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the, here's a word, same love, being, here's another word, one in spirit and purpose. Look at those words in verses 1 to 2 about unity. Any encouragement being united with Christ? Have you any comfort from his love, fellowship with the Spirit, tenderness and compassion. In other words, are you sharing these realities of being connected with Christ? 
If you have any of that, then, then make my joy complete. Like, fulfill this hope I have for you by being of the same mind. Put your minds on the same page. Have the same love and affection for one another. Be one in spirit and purpose. There's a clear call for unity that he calls this early church to. And he goes on in verse 3 and verse 4 to talk about the selflessness piece. He says, do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So immediately in verses 3 and 4, he, he taps into this selflessness piece. Don't, don't be selfish. You know, don't, don't do anything out of selfish ambition, but in humility, look around you and see who you can serve. Each of you should look not only to the interests that you have, that you wake up with, but also to the interests of others, the interests that they wake up with, the way that they see the world, the way that they think. And so immediately in verses 1 to 2 and 3 and 4, Paul is setting up this really incredible view of the church and saying, church, I want you to be unified in purpose. I want you to be of one mind. If you have any um, sharing in the affection for one another and what Christ has done, be one in mind and then do nothing out of selfish ambition or vacancy. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. I mean, just do this. Now, to which if I'm in the church, I'm sitting around thinking, Paul, where in the world have you ever seen this work? I mean, I know this sounds good for teaching on a Sunday morning. I know it sounds good when the environment is kind of sterile and I'm not thinking about the conflict with my family or the struggle I'm having with my children or the financial crisis I'm in or the fact that I don't like the person who's worshiping three rows in front of me. Like, if I take all that out for a minute, I get you, Paul. Like, in a sterile environment, I get you. But have you ever, Paul, have you ever met our church? Have you ever met my family? Have you ever been in Philippi? Like, have you ever been here, Paul? Are you serious? Do you actually think that the church can do this? Do you think we can actually, all of us literally, can actually do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Do you think we can actually consistently with great integrity say, I'm going to put your interest above mine? I mean, I know you see politics different than me, but hey, that's all right. After you. Hey, I know you see things spiritually differently. After you, how can I serve you? Hey, I know you're in my family. It's weird around Christmas time and Thanksgiving. We have in-law stress. I get that. But you know what? Hey, mother-in-law, after you, whatever you need, how can we serve you? To which I think people who are thinking in Philippi are like, Paul, that's wonderful, but that is for the science lab. That is not for real life. In what world have you ever seen people with that kind of unity and that kind of selflessness over and over and over and over and over again actually working? Which is why I think Paul, in my opinion, is kind of sitting around thinking as he's writing this, like, this sounds really good, but no one is going to believe me that it's possible. Unless I give them an illustration. Unless I help bring it down. I need to prove that this actually can work. And I need an incredible illustration to make it happen. And so what he does in verses 5 to 11 is gives this incredible illustration. And it's verses 5 to 11 that will be what we are going to pick apart for the next four weeks beginning today. Particularly 5 and 6 today and on from there. I want to read verses 5 to 11, and we're going to come back to talk about verses 5 to 6. This, I think, is Paul's illustration because he knows that this is not possible, this is not real life, unless he can really help us believe it. And he does so in verses 5 to 11. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This passage has become an incredibly beautiful, very meaningful passage to me, and a passage that some of you, if you have Bible or church background, you're familiar with. But it's an incredibly, incredibly succinct, powerful passage that speaks about who Jesus is, particularly around Christmas time. At Christmas time, Christians believe that Jesus came down, God in the flesh, took on human flesh, and was born among men to live among us, ultimately to die for our sins. So Christmas is that celebration of Christ, the eternal God, taking on flesh and humanity. And so we recognize that, and this passage speaks to that, what we call that incarnation. That's what we mean by that term. And verses 5 and 6 is particularly important where I want to begin, because Paul says, to kind of put this in illustration form, he said, your attitude, if I can, I know that sounds all high and idealistic, you know, always be united, you know, be selfless, and you, that's going to be too hard for us to really get. So let me give you an illustration of what I mean. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 6, and this is where I want to focus this morning, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The, the, what's going on here? Look at verse 6. The first part of this verse, it says, who being in very nature God, or your, your translation might say, who being in the form of God. Um, there's a Greek word there called morphe or morphing. We know what that word means in English, to morph or change into something, and, and the word is used here to, to, to morph. So basically the idea that God, you could say morphed into, uh, you know, Jesus was in the morph or the form uh, of God. The question is, what form, what does that mean? What does that mean to be in the form of God? Back in the day when actually telephone, where, where homes had telephones in them. You ever met a home like that, where there's telephones in the home, not just on the person with them? But back in the day, I grew up in a home that actually had a telephone in it. And some of us still have telephones in our homes. Uh, and people would call a lot, and they would always get me and my dad confused on the phone. Because our voices sound very similar. And you would say, well, then I'm in the form or the morphe of my father. Like, I'm the form of that. You will hear that because of my voice sounds like my dad. Nowadays, um, to take it take, take, take to the next generation, um, when Facebook sees a picture of my kid, sometimes they tag my kid as me because they just look at the face and they're like, ah, oh, that's you. Like, no, that's not me. That's my daughter. Okay? So the, the smart technology on Facebook sees the face and like, oh, you're, that person is in the form of this person, so I'm going to tag you and I think you're a girl. I'm not a, I'm not a girl. I'm not a teenage girl. I'm, I'm me. Okay? And so what does it mean to be in the form of someone else? And, and this is a very, very important question because Christians... Um, actually will say that Jesus is God, period. But this seems to say like Jesus is in the form of God, like he's kind of like God, but is he really God? And, and he goes on to try to clarify in the next, ver in the next phrase, he said, Jesus being in very nature God, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. It's, 
this grasping word is this hard, like holding white knuckle, holding on to, like I, uh, this image of, you can imagine riding in a kitty roller coaster with um, a kid at the, the fair. It's their first time riding one of these small little loop-de-loop things, and they're about six inches off the ground, but they're so afraid, and they're holding on to you with all that they have, and they're grasping onto you. That's kind of the image of this, like holding on with all their, their might. And Paul's saying, like, Jesus did not consider the equality that he had with God the Father something to be grasped so tightly that he must stay in heaven and not come to earth for us. He didn't hold that equality so tightly and so strongly that he was afraid to let go of that to come here with us. And begins to raise an important question. Therefore, did he release equality with God? Is he no longer God? Is he just in the form of God? Now, this question is more than philosophical. I want to explain why in a little bit. But this question is profound for the church. This idea that Jesus is actually God, not just the form of God, but actually God himself, is a view that, believe it or not, if you believe that today, you, you um, need to know that that view almost never made it out of the early church. That view was under incredible pressure from the very beginning as the early Christians were trying to figure out who is Jesus and how does it work. I need to, you need to think with me for a minute about what it actually was like in Philippi, for example, when new Christians were starting to develop and relate to one another and relate to the world around them. There was no other churches that existed. This is brand spanking new. And the only way to introduce new concepts to people is to correlate them or correspond them to concepts that already exist. And you do this all the time with kids. If they're trying to understand an idea and it's too hard an idea, you will bring it down to them and correspond the big principle to something simple that they will understand. For Christians, many people who were not Christians or not followers of Jesus in the first century thought that the first Christians were actually atheists. The reason they thought that is because these Christians didn't have any um, semblance of a God. They didn't have an idol that they worshipped. There wasn't a tangible God that you could look to. And Christians would say, yeah, we don't. We don't have that. To which the people around them were like, then you are atheist. You are atheist. You don't actually believe in a God, Christian. The Christian was like, no, no, no. That's not true. And so to correspond a new idea to the reality of what was happening at the time, the Christians actually leaned into philosophers like Plato back in the day. Because here's what was known in the philosophical world, that there was kind of a supreme being or an eternal God that made everything. People like Plato and others talked about there's a supreme being that kind of made everything that exists. The problem with Plato is that he would say, but that supreme being is uh, passionless. They're not interested in you or me. They don't don't care. They're emotionless. They're dispassionate. They're pulled away. And so Christians, while appealing to this idea of a supreme being to communicate what they believed, had a problem because they said, The God of the Bible, when God walked with Moses and talked with him, he he actually was present with humanity. This isn't the God of Plato. This isn't the eternal, uh, you know, supreme being. This is a different type. So first century theologians began to say, you know, we need to clarify a little bit more how we talk about Jesus. Not just about God, but we need to talk about how God related to people. And so Christians, early Christians, began to form this idea of the Word of God, not just the eternal God, but the Word of God becoming flesh. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, John will write there that the Word of God, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so early theologians began to say, listen, 
don't get the idea that, that God is dispassionate, removed, and separate from you. We also want you to know that while God created everything, the Word of God, or the Logos of God, the Word of God has come close to us through the person of Jesus and has created, basically, the creation of God, that which we see around us. Now, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move past the philosophy for a minute, but I need you to be here to understand what's happening. In this world, there began to be a question about, if you were to draw a line in this space up here, between God and the creation, where would you draw that line? In other words, if you had a line to draw, would you draw a line here and say that the eternal God, the one who has made everything, also made the Word of God? That the eternal God made Jesus as the first and best creation, through whom he also made creation? Or would you draw the line here and say, no, actually, the Word of God is the eternal God, and together they are God, and that God made the creation. Now, it may seem like a small thing, but it is very, very important. There was a man in about 300 AD named Arius, and Arius taught this, and he said there was a time when he was not. Arius was a bishop, and he said there was a time when Jesus did not exist, because he drew that line between the eternal God and the Word of God. And Arius said, there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. Jesus was the first and best of all creation. And through him, creation was made. Now that may sound interesting, but it's very problematic. Another bishop named Alexander, who was his contemporary, said to to Arius, "Um, you're wrong, and you no longer are going to be able to lead your church or your region or anything. I am defrocking you. Isn't that a great word? Like, I'm taking you out of this position. You cannot be a bishop anymore because this teaching goes against the core of Christian faith. Jesus is not the first and best of all creation. That line needs to be drawn differently. Jesus is fully God, to which Arius says, I don't think so. I'm fighting this one. And Arius writes a letter to all his supporters and actually to all the bishops in the region. And other bishops in the region come alongside and get on his side and others are on Alexander's side. And all of a sudden, Rome has a problem on its hands. They don't want to be fighting a theological battle, but they are. And just at that time, Constantine becomes emperor of Rome, this brand new emperor. And what he decides to do is he brings together for the first time in the history of the church, bishops of all stripes together into one big room, and Constantine, as the emperor, presides over a council meeting in Nicaea. For the first time, there's 300 bishops in the room, many of whom just 10, 20 years ago were imprisoned for the very faith that they are now brought to Rome to defend, or brought to Nicaea to defend. And so they're seeing each other in the room, and all of a sudden seeing the great universality of the Christian faith. And here's what One person who was in that room said about that meeting, Eusebius, he said this, There were gathered the most distinguished ministers of God from the many churches in Europe, Africa, and Asia, a single house of prayer as if enlarged by God, sheltered Syrians and Cilicians, Phoenicians and Arabs, delegates from Palestine and from Egypt, Thebans and Libyans, together with those from Mesopotamia. Constantine is the first ruler of all time to have gathered such a garland in the bond of peace. All these people in the room, many of whom had just been abused and tortured in prison for the first time coming together by the Roman emperor in a bond of peace. And here's what happened in that space. Eusebius, this guy, gets up to talk, and he gets to represent Arian's view first. He gets up to talk in a group of 300 people. His belief is, if I can only communicate to you in a logical way that Jesus is the first created being of God, you will certainly all understand because it's a very logical belief. 
And so he gets up to speak, and what he doesn't expect is what happens next. And what happens next in the room is that you hear from other bishops, all of a sudden, alarm bells are going off in their brain, and they're saying, wait a minute, this isn't right, this isn't right, this isn't right. And something builds within each of them, and you begin to hear in the room, you lie, blasphemy. And apparently, Eusebius' speech is ripped from his hands, torn apart, and stomped underfoot in this room and in this space. At the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the entire movement of the Christian faith moved toward Alexander's viewpoint. And here's what they came up with language-wise to talk about Jesus at this time. Here's what they said. That we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, light of light, true God of true God. And then they went on to say this. But for those who say that there was a time when he was not, or that he was created, these the church, not a great word, anathematizes, which is kind of like anesthesia, except not. These the church anathematizes. In other words, those who believe, those who believe that Jesus is not fully God, those who believe that there was a time when, when he was not, that he wasn't eternal, those who believe that, what they're saying is let that belief condemn them to hell. That's what anathematizes means. Whether you like it or not, that's just kind of where the Council of Nicaea came down. So this is what the church has believed. So to recap real quick, there was a, a guy named Arius in 300s who said Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God the Father. That's what he said. That view was condemned as heresy at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Now here's something I want you to know. In October of 2018, Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries put out a poll, did some research, did some digging into what U.S. evangelical Christians believe. They took this exact phrase that I have on the screen here and asked evangelical Christians, do you agree or disagree with this statement? 78% of U.S. evangelical Christians agree with this statement. About 80% of U.S. evangelicals believe in a heretical position of who Jesus is. Merry Christmas, everybody. When I think about Christmas this year, I want to start with making sure that we, as the church, are thinking clearly about Jesus. Being fully God, having equality with God, but didn't keep it as something to be grasped, but willingly gave up that position eternally from in heaven from us to join us here, but in doing so did not give up his godness, that he is light of light, true God of true God, that God himself in the form of Jesus Christ, came to live among us. Not a created being. Not another prophet. Not a good man. Not a teacher. Christians believe that God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, came for you and for me. So what does that mean? First of all, God in his fullness, came for you. Think about that just for a minute. If you have ever, come on, if you ever looked in the mirror and wondered about your value, if you've ever been in a time of crisis and wondered about your future, if you've ever been looking at your marriage and wondering what's going to go on, if you've ever looking at your kids and worried and fearful, and if you've ever looked at your own self and being like, I don't... God himself 
not someone else, not, a, not his chief lieutenant, not the captain of the army, not the next representative, not the lieutenant, not a secretary of state. God himself, the one who created all of the world, God himself said, you are worth saving and I'm coming for you in the fullness of who I am. That God himself came for you. And so when you stare at your struggles, when you stare at your pain and your insecurities, I want you to know that God came for you in that space. Romans 5.8 tells us, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were still in your pain and struggle, Christ died. So if you have ever struggled with your value, your identity, your feelings of, am I worth it? Is there a future here? God himself at Christmas time came for you. That tells me something. Secondly, church. If God can lower himself to my level, what's my excuse? If God can lower himself to my level, come on, what's my excuse? This is why Paul uses this as an illustration to the church. He said, be of one mind. Be selfless with one another, to which I say, come on, Paul, have you met the people that I work with? Come on, have you met the people that I worship with? Man, Paul, have you met my family? To which Paul's like, okay, that's great. Can I just remind you of one thing? The eternal God lowered himself to humanity. Now, let's talk about your issues. Like, What's my excuse for holding on to my pride? What's my excuse for holding on to not asking for your forgiveness or being willing to extend grace? What's my excuse for continuing to hold myself above you without even telling you that and hold myself above you morally? What's my excuse for doing that? If God himself demonstrates this, come on, what's, what's my excuse? Church, what's our excuse? Thirdly, I want to say this. Only a perfect sacrifice could break the power of death. Only a perfect sacrifice could break the power of death. Jesus, being fully God, could not just satisfy a demand of death, but could actually break that power of death. And in breaking that power of death, this is, by the way, the very first sacrifice that could do this. All other sacrifices in the Old Testament could cover sin for a time being until sin occurred again, but sin always led to death. Therefore, there need to be constant sacrifices to clean, cleanse, constant, constant, constant. A perfect sacrifice, however would not just cleanse, but would break the power and cycle of death. And in that, create the space for God to make the decision. You know what? I forgive you. I forgive you. I have the power to forgive sins. This is what Jesus was condemned for by the religious leaders in the New Testament. They asked him, who gives, who gives you the right to forgive sins? Because when you, when, you are the, when you are God and you die in the place of us... You have the chance to forgive sins. And so as you think about your own efforts and work and the things that, that we do to try to kind of clean ourselves up for God, the consistency I try to have, the, the, the way that I might try to show myself to God as being faithful, the kind of hope that I have maybe if I do the right things and I'm moral and listen to the right music and do the right things with my family, that like maybe God will, will be more pleased with me. Or when I sin, when I fall, and when I fall into temptation and struggle, like... What I need to do first is a little bit of penance, a little bit of beating myself up, and to kind of show God that I really mean it, that I'm really ready for, the, for, for forgiveness, and I'm really worth being saved. To which I think God is just saying, man, thank you for your small little effort. I love you regardless. Like, I've forgiven you regardless. And so as you come to Christmas time, as you come to who God is, Jesus has broken this power of death and said, I have the freedom and the power to give to you forgiveness in its fullness without you doing a single thing for it. 
Because that's what happens when you die in the place of people like you and me. So at Christmas time, Jesus, fully God, comes so that you and I can have the kind of hope that we need, that God himself comes and lands in a human body and says, I'm here in all of my fullness. Not a form, not a, not a first lieutenant, not someone kind of like him, not like me and my dad or me and my daughter, but God himself. Which is why Paul says to the church, be of the same mind, be of the same heart, in selflessness, give yourselves to one another through this season. And so church, what I want for you is I don't want you to be in the 80%. I want you to be in the 20%. This is, this is profound for me. That God in his fullness, the one who's created the world and everything in it, has come and poured himself into human flesh and has died for you and died for me. No matter what no matter where you come from. When God came and took on human flesh, he came for a purpose. That purpose was ultimately to go to the cross and die for you and for me and break the power of death so that he can extend forgiveness to each one of us. And we as a church celebrate that in what we call communion, which we're going to share together in just a minute. And as we get kind of ready for communion, get ready for this piece of communion, I want to invite you for a minute I want you to invite you to a moment of quiet, prayerful reflection. And I want you to ask the question, if Jesus is fully God, if Jesus is fully God and died for me, how then should I live? If Jesus Christ is fully God and died for me, how, how then should I live? right now. I just want you to ask that question in the quietness of your own heart as you think about the people that you interact with, the schools you go to, the places you go to work, your family. If Jesus Christ is fully God and died for me, how then should I live? I'm going to give you a moment of quiet reflection on that. I'm going to lead us out of that time in prayer, and then we're going to share in communion together. Will you join me in a time of quiet reflection right now? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for sending Jesus Christ to come and be born at this Christmas season in the most humble of ways, to take on human flesh with all of the 
struggles and tensions that we experience in our humanity and all the difficulties of growing up and getting to the point where he was ready to lay down his life on the cross for us. But we come to recognize that we wouldn't understand this kind of love without an illustration of it. We wouldn't understand how to be people of unity or be people who are selfless without an illustration of it in its highest form. And so we are grateful to you for sending your son into our world to invade our space and show us what it looks like to experience a kind of love that is unparalleled in our natural human history. So I pray for us this morning. There's many in this room, many listening online later, who are at different places with this, some of whom are struggling to believe that Jesus is actually fully God. And I get that. I pray for those that in that space that you would give them the courage to keep asking the necessary questions to kind of get under that question, to keep tracking this down and seeing where it might go. For those of us who are in that boat, I pray that you would continue to revolutionize our thinking with our marriages, with our children, with our work, with our school, that we can come with a kind of both unity and selflessness to everything that we do that says, Jesus is God, and he died for me. What value that brings to me and to all those who we come in contact with. What a profound gift that is beyond our words to express. So I pray that you would give us courage to live accordingly with the selflessness of your Son, Jesus Christ, as our model and our example. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.